Welcome to the Nerd Party. Hello, hello. Welcome back to Throwback Paperback. I'm one of your hosts, Charles Sheeland. And I'm the other host, Asia Bonilla. We are back this week to discuss the first chunk of chapters from Percy Jackson and the Battle of the Labyrinth by Rick Riordan. We're discussing chapters 1 through 10 today. Yep, and for anyone who's new to our show, we're a podcast with the Nerd Party Network that takes a book club approach to reading and rereading young adult literature. We're best friends, and we want to share certain childhood and adolescent books with each other, so we turn those discussions into a podcast for anyone else who wants to join in. And I wanted to start the show with this series, the Percy Jackson series, and share it with Charles, who's never read it before. And since he's new to the books, he gets to summarize the reading in case anyone in our audience didn't get to read along this week. So Charles, can you get into the summary for us? Sure. Let's jump right into The Battle of the Labyrinth, chapters 1 through 10. We start with Percy at orientation for a new high school, which, as always, goes to a total mess. Annabeth helps him get out, and they make their way back to camp. We have Grover getting a hearing and a warning from the Cloven Elders Council. Tyson comes back to camp, and Percy starts getting mysterious Iris messages sent to him of Nico, the Hades half-blood from last book. The crew starts discussing Daedalus's labyrinth because Percy and Annabeth fall into an entrance of this major labyrinth in camp. And the camp decides that they need a quest to enter the labyrinth and thwart Luke on his evil plans. So they decide it's going to be the gang, Annabeth, Percy, Grover, and Tyson. They're going to go on the quest, and Clarice is going to stay back and guard Camp Half-Blood because she's a boss. Our crew then embarks on the quest, and they have an interaction really quickly with Hera, which we're definitely going to talk about, and then some other obstacles... And finally, they get to a pretty spooky ranch with some freaky animals where they also find Nico and he's hanging out there. They have a little bit of bonding with Nico, but he still doesn't really like them. And then they decide to leave to find Hephaestus's workshop without bringing Nico. And that's about where we got so far. So I'll jump right into my first impressions. I thoroughly enjoyed this reading, actually, because I really enjoyed having our gang back together. Obviously, I miss Clarice. But I like when we have our protagonists, you know, the first book we had our crew and then the second book we were missing Grover and the third book we were missing Annabeth. So I like that we've got our gang together. It feels nice to have Tyson as well. And I like that we're getting a nice, complex and emotional character in Nico. He's not just mean or evil. Like, we have that complexity in Luke as well. But I'm enjoying that Nico, you know, he's still a child and he's got childish feelings but they're 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 valid and they're confused and they're irrational all at the same time and i i just enjoy that a lot so i'm enjoying the character of nico but asia what about your impressions for me i definitely really enjoyed this reading as we're getting into the fourth book in this series I am remembering less and less so this time it really felt more like i was reading the book for the first time which is something i really enjoy just a lot of the things I didn't see coming, so that was nice. And I also just really enjoyed 
our development into Percy and Annabeth's friendship slash romance. We really are starting to see how the two of them feel about each other. They have very strong feelings. So jumping right in, we have to flag the romance that the book starts out that Percy has a date with Annabeth. And that doesn't end up happening, but Annabeth is very jealous of Rachel when she helps save Percy. Yeah. And before, like, I respond to that, I do, I like that we've been flagging the romance because we've been building it over the course of the books. It's not like they just became teenagers and they started to like each other. And it's not like, oh, well, because they're best friends, we have to assume that they also can have feelings for each other. Like, we've seen it build over the course of the books, which I also appreciate just as a reader, that it's not just, oh, they're best friends and so they're naturally together. Like we see the romance has been building. So that's nice. But yes, we definitely get some Annabeth jealousy. She even mentions that Rachel is pretty and Percy's like, I didn't even think about her that way because he only (laughs) has eyes for Annabeth. But I liked that we got that from Annabeth. And speaking of which, we get Rachel back and we both called it last book. We were like, she's going to be back somehow. I mean, we only got a chapter with her, but I feel like she'll be back again. But we called that. Rachel's back. Yeah, and she helps him escape again because Percy can't even see the Empusa. How do you say this? I'm these words. Charles. I have no idea. I think I would say Empusai. Empusai? Okay. Well, the scary things. The one is named Kelly is the main one, and then I don't remember the other one's name, but Percy doesn't even notice them because they're so pretty. Like, they come across these beautiful cheerleaders that it's hard for him to even see through the mist. So I thought that was really cool that Rachel actually helps him even see what they really are. But in that scene, at the end, Kelly tells Percy that Camp Half-Blood will end up in flames and his friends will be made slaves to the Lord of Time, which I wrote down in my notes, who is the Lord of Time? That doesn't seem like a character we've met before, but maybe I'm just mistaken. It's Kronos. I don't think it's been said in the books yet, but Kronos is the Titan of Time. Ah, Yep, I missed so, that. I did not get that. No worries. I don't I don't know if it's ever been mentioned in the books, but I'm pretty sure that Kronos is the Titan of Time. I think that like the word clock is like not far off from like the original Greek name for Kronos. I'm not quite sure. I might be completely wrong with the linguistics, but I do know that Kronos is the Titan of Time and I think his wife is Gaia or something like that and she's like the Titan of Earth or something like that. So like together they make space and time. That, that makes sense because we already have our identified evil antagonist. So that makes sense that it would be referring to Kronos. So after that, they finally get back to Camp Half-Blood where we meet this mysterious character named Quintus who says he's a half-blood, but he's a swordsman. And this is very interesting because we've never met an older half-blood in the series. They've all been children. So I know for Percy, he even reacts that it's kind of nice to see a half-blood, you know, that's survived since most half-bloods don't live that long since they become heroes and they have to fight monsters and stuff. And Percy, when he comes in, Grover is on trial and he ends up, he has a week until he'll be losing his searcher's license which I know I wrote down that that seemed a little extreme because 
I think they say that he's been searching for the past six months since the previous book, which was around the winter solstice. I just feel like six months doesn't seem like that long to search for this long lost god Pan who's been gone for a very long time. But, you know, I understand that that's a big plot point. So, you know, we have to have deadlines. Yeah, I really agree with you that it's got to be about deadlines because it makes no sense because it's not like everyone knows where Pan is and it's been done and like he's failing in a pre-existing timeline. Like no one has found Pan and Grover has done some really heroic, great things on his journey, on his journeys. So I feel like Unless someone else has found Pan and it's like it it has to be done within seven months or something like that, there seems to be no reason to take away his license. Like, whatever. Ugh, that yeah, I didn't like that. I didn't get that either. <laughs> also, yeah, it doesn't make any sense to me because no one has found him. And yeah, we get two adult half-bloods in this book. We get Quintus and Eutarian, mm-hmm. which is crazy, like, because we've seen them all just, all the other half-bloods have just died as kids. But Quintus is very suspicious. Like, the whole he has a hellhound as a pet, I I don't think, and I'm sure we'll get into this a little later, I don't think that Quintus is evil. I think that he's something else in our vector of good to evil spectrum. Yeah. Um, but I do think that the whole hellhound as a pet is a little suspicious. Whatever. Moving on from Quintus, I'm sure we'll get back to him. We get the pleasant development of Annabeth and Clarice. They've been working together, and they seem to be, like, friends, which, of course, we love because Clarice is the best. Yeah. The only thing I remember I noted at the beginning when Percy first gets there, they kind of seem to be leaving him out and not giving him all the information, which I understand is, for the reader's point of view, it's leaving things in suspense. If Percy doesn't find out right away, neither will the reader, but... I don't know. I just was like, why is Annabeth all buddy-buddy with Clarice, but she can't tell anything to Percy? Yeah, we're going to get even more of that. And I think we should definitely talk about it once we get to the prophecy, because there's a lot of that coming up. Yes. And since I am the tracker of dreams, we have this dreamy Iris message that Percy receives in the middle of the night, and he doesn't know who it's coming from. And he sees that Nico is attempting to bring Bianca back from the dead. And he seems to be talking to this ghostly figure. And basically we find out that in order to do this, he has to trade a soul for a soul. So he will have to kill someone who cheated death in order to get Bianca back. Yeah. And I know it's jumping ahead, but we discuss it. We should just discuss it now because later Nico says it's not Percy that he wants to kill, like that Percy's soul is not valuable enough. So who do you think that Nico thinks he has to kill to get Bianca's soul? I don't, I didn't really think about this too much because I was like, this is way too much. There's too much going on. But who I, if I had to say who I think he should kill, he should kill Luke. Luke's obviously cheated death multiple times because... Like I said, I still think he's he's some in some way tied to Kronos, I think. We don't know for sure mm-hmm. yet, but he obviously, just in the last book, he fell 50 feet, should have died, obviously didn't. So I think that would make the most sense. I don't know if that's who Nika's going to go for, because that's, that's a very high bar to be reaching for. Obviously, Luke is very high-ranking in the Titan army. He's means a lot to Kronos, I think. Like, I... 
it would be really hard to get to him but then again Nico's not really thinking straight so that could be who he's trying to go for but what did you think I thought I I think Luke is a pretty obvious choice I thought it might be someone more innocent like Percy's mom or Tyson someone who's just like purely good and we know Percy's mom has sort of cheated death I don't think that we'll get that because I feel like that's very not young adult literature to like go for the mother we've already seen her die once but I think that maybe it needs to be someone who's a little more pure of heart because he says that Percy's not even valuable enough Mm -hmm. but we'll see and I because you track dreams I track powers we get another god's kids having powers the Demeter kids before the inspection, they just snap their fingers and they grow plants, which one super cool power. But like, that's a, an actual supernatural power that we've seen them have. And if you think about it, we haven't had our other characters besides Talia and Percy have supernatural powers. Like they have skills. Like we know that the the Hermes kids are like shiftier and they're sneaky. And we know the Clarice kids are like the Ares kids are strong, but we haven't seen them like, summon powers except talia with lightning and percy with water but the demeter kids they can summon plant life like a satyr which is i don't think that we'll ever see them in battle but i just wanted to mention that it's pretty cool that they did get powers and this gives me like a little more leeway on percy having as many powers as he has yeah that that i i almost forgot what you were talking about but yes i do remember that section and Yes, that is very cool because we haven't seen that with any of the other kids. Most of them just have special abilities or skills. So that is interesting how it's spread amongst. Like, it makes sense for Talia and Percy because, you know, they're part of the big three, the mm-hmm. most powerful gods, and with Nico, like, with his, like son of Hades. But for Demeter, that does seem kind of random, but it makes sense for what she's a goddess of. For sure. So moving on, we get to the labyrinth and we finally find out what Clarice's secret quest was about because she was at her mom's house in Phoenix. And while she was there, she discovered Chris Rodriguez. If we remember, he was the half-blood from the Hermes cabin, I believe, who had joined the Titan army and Luke's forces. And was that book two that we saw him? Book two. It was when they got on the ghost ship after the first encounter with the sea pony yes so that's so that's him so we find him and he has gone mad from being in the labyrinth which jumping a little bit ahead we find out that nico's ghost king minos is the one who made him go mad which is terrible but so that's why she after discovering him her job she was trying to find different entrances to the labyrinth and try to figure it out because they were assuming that Luke and the army were planning an attack on Camp Half-Blood, but they hadn't discovered the entrance in Camp Half-Blood at Zeus's Fist. And so we find out Luke is obviously looking for Ariadne's string for them to help navigate the maze and use it to their advantage. And Annabeth also tells Grover, because he's hesitant when they suggest that they should all go underground. She says that the god Pan could be underground. Satyrs never go underground, so it makes sense that he would be hiding down there. But Grover, still terrified, eventually agrees. So after we learn all these things about the labyrinth, soon after, 
they're playing a game with Quintus has set up this thing in the forest where they have to find the golden wreaths on these special monsters, which turn out to be giant scorpions. And Annabeth and Percy get attacked by three of them at once, which can we just talk about how terrifying that sounds? Like not one giant scorpion, three giant scorpions. Like I don't like bugs, but like I cannot imagine a giant scorpion. But anyway, back to the story. <laughs> they get surrounded by these three scorpions and they're at Zeus's fist, the giant boulder, and they end up trying to sneak in between and they fall into the Camp Half-Blood entrance to the labyrinth. And that's where they figure out that that's what Luke must be planning. He's going to invade the camp through this entrance because they won't be subject to the camp's magical borders. They'll just be able to walk right in and attack everyone. Yeah, like in this chapter, we basically get the whole plot of the book. Like there's this background of the labyrinth and the labyrinth is how Luke can get in. And there's an entrance into Camp Half-Blood and we have a reason to think that Pan might be down there or at least like there's a lead. So... We get a lot of, well, this is what this book is going to be about. And we find out even a couple more things. We know that Quintus was sneaking around it because Juniper lets us know that Quintus was sneaking around. And Quintus even admits later that he's been inside it. And then we also, Percy kind of figures out that Nico must be in the labyrinth as well, trying to find, Percy thinks he's coming to get him, but we just know that um, that Nico is hiding in the labyrinth. And we also find out that when Percy and Ambeth fall in, they were only gone for about a minute, but they've, it seems they've been gone for over an hour outside, which means that time goes faster in the labyrinth. So it's just something to remember about the labyrinth. But that's kind of what our plot for this book is going to be. There's going to be a bunch of converging threads within the labyrinth. Yes. And then we have yet another Percy dream. Ew. And, and he dreams about, please correct me if I say this wrong, Didalis? I was going to say Daedalus, but How you're probably is... right. Okay. About Daedalus is easier to say. Also, there's a Harry Potter character called Daedalus, but I can't remember how it's spelled. Because the A-E. It should be Daedalus. It should Daedalus? be Daedalus. It's Daedalus. Okay. I, I can read English. It's Daedalus. <laughs> Percy has a dream about Daedalus and his son and how they are trapped in a room with 20-foot walls but no ceiling, and they're being imprisoned by a king. And Percy gets all this information about him, and he's having these dreams and getting all these things, which is why it bothers me that Annabeth and Clarice keep leaving him out of the loop. Percy's getting all this information. He could be helping, but for some reason they've formed this bond just at the beginning of the book mainly because once they go on the quest, obviously he's back in the loop. But I know that was bothering me a lot at the beginning. And then Quintus says something about, and this is when Quintus says something about Chris, but he doesn't elaborate on it. And then Clarice gives Percy like a death glare for wanting information it's like i don't know that whole part like i just i hate when people do that like in real life that's one of my pet peeves when people like keep things from people especially when by knowing those things they could help so i don't know that that bothered me which is why i wrote it down oh yeah i i really don't like that in real life either but especially like we know that percy is special like 
it's obvious that Percy is special and he's friends with them. So there's no reason to cut him out. Like, as I was reading my notes and your notes, thinking about it, I was like, this reminds me just of like Harry Potter 5. And again, we're not talking Harry Potter, but like there's always going to be Harry Potter references from my end. But like in book five, Dumbledore, like he's worried about the connection between Voldemort and Harry. And so he just cuts Harry out of it, out of a bunch of things. And that just makes Harry more angry and less helpful. And you're like, he could be useful, but by cutting him out, you just make a bigger problem. So I don't, I really don't like it when we leave the protagonist out of things. Like I get it. It's totally good for the reader because it builds suspense for us. Yeah. But it's so frustrating as a, as like the friend of the protagonist to be like, ugh, just give them the information. Uh, Anyway, back to things I like flagging romance moments. I feel like I'm Aphrodite. I'm so invested in this love, like between Annabeth and Percy. <laughs> but they hold hands when they're in the cave. Super cute. And then during the war council, Annabeth comes and sits. Oh, no. It's during when they're at the meal and Annabeth comes and sits yeah, at the bench. At the breakfast, yeah. And she sits right next to Percy and he notices it. And wow. So great. And then Annabeth gets the quest and Percy is so happy for her. He's like so excited for her to get this quest. Yes, and then Annabeth goes to get her prophecy, and it takes her a long time to come back. And when she finally comes back to the group and tells her prophecy, she acts like she doesn't fully remember it, which we know Annabeth. She knows the whole prophecy. She just doesn't want to tell us. But what she does tell us is, is the prophecy says, You shall delve in the darkness of the endless maze, the dead, the traitor, and the lost one raise. You shall rise or fall by the ghost king's hand, the child of Athena's final stand, destroy with the hero's final breath. And then she doesn't give us the last line, but later on Percy asks her if the last line has something to do with death because each pairing line rhymes and death rhymes with breath. So he's just making that assumption and that's maybe why she doesn't want to tell us because it's likely someone's going to die. So she goes on, she picks who's going with her on the quest, and she picks, obviously, Percy, Grover, and then she also picks Tyson, which I know Chiron made a huge point about how the three is the golden number. Only three are normally supposed to go on a quest. He even says how in the last book, there were five that went on the quest, and only three came back. And this idea of that... Three is a magic number. You should never exceed it. But Annabeth's like, I need four people. Like, I can feel it in my gut. So Chiron felt bad about that. But she decides to go with four. Clarice specifically says she does not want to go. She does not want to have to go back into the labyrinth. And we find out that she's been comforting Chris, the one who went mad. Because earlier, before Annabeth comes back with the prophecy, Percy becomes impatient and goes to the big house to see if he can find her. But he hears noise down in the basement and he goes and peeks down and sees Clarice kind of comforting Chris. And this explains why earlier Clarice gave Percy that death glare when Quintus mentioned Chris because she probably doesn't want him to know that she obviously has a little bit of a soft side and obviously maybe has feelings for Chris or they were maybe good friends before he left and joined Luke. But I just, I thought that was also nice to see Clarice like in a different light. Like she 
does have feelings for people and does care about others. So I liked that. But after seeing Chris, Percy even says he's definitely not looking forward to going to the labyrinth after he sees how Chris is acting and how crazy he seems. Well, I always knew Clarice was a good guy, and I was right, saying. Uh, also, when Chris, when Percy sees Chris, and Chris says something about, like, the son of Poseidon, and Percy's like, I don't think he was talking about me. I don't know what that means yet. It doesn't really, he just mentions it, but we know Tyson is a son of Poseidon, and we know that there are four people on this quest, and I think that Tyson is more disposable than Percy. So I think that if someone is going to snuff it, this book, it's probably going to be Tyson or something is going to happen or some other son of Poseidon is going to get figured in. Like there's something coming up because Percy's like, I don't think he's talking about me. And maybe it was nothing, but I just want to clock it in case it does come up. Yeah, I think I had written something down because is Theseus a son of Poseidon? He's the one who was in. Mm hmm. The, he's the one who goes into the maze himself. He goes into the maze himself and he's able to get out with the string. And he, we talked to him a little bit later in the book. We talked to his, is it Nico talks to his ghost and is asking uh-huh. like, how do you do it? Is this real? I feel like that could maybe be connected, but maybe not just cause if he's a son of Poseidon, that's another son of Poseidon. Like it could be his ghost, but yes, that is something hopefully we'll find out in the next half of the book. Yeah, I can look. I can double check Theseus's parentage. But besides Chiron not approving of this quest of four, Quintus also seems very concerned. And he gives Percy this like river sticks ice whistle, which obviously we don't trust. And even Percy's like, Luke gave me a gift and it tried to kill me. And I was like, thank God Percy has grown up a little bit and not to trust these people. But yeah, the whistle and the whole like summoning a hellhound, just not a good idea. But we definitely get some concern about this quest. Yeah. But before we get on the quest, we have another Percy dream. And this time, Percy has a dream where he is back on the Princess Andromeda with Luke, who is back in full health and is having a conversation with Kronos in his coffin. And Kronos says that he wants to lead the army through the maze once the final bargain is made, which we don't know what that bargain is. And Luke seems hesitant and says something about maybe something being wrong with the form. So I think that Kronos is going to go into Luke's body or something. And maybe that's why Luke's scared. I'm not really sure. But Charles, you're like this. Luke mentions the spies again at camp and how the spies have told them that they're going on a quest and everything's falling into place. So hopefully we're going to find out who those spies are soon. Yeah, hopefully. Thank you for remembering that because I've mentioned them. We've been talking about these spies for two books, which also makes me think it can't be Quintus because Quintus is one, he's way too suspicious, but also he's new. So he can't be like the continuous spy. Like if he is a spy, one, it's very obvious. Like the new guy happens to be evil. Okay. But also he can't have been spying for Luke continuously if he's new. Also, I just double checked it. And Theseus is sort of a son of Poseidon. Basically, his mom walks into the ocean and the spirit of Poseidon makes her pregnant, a little bit like virgin impregnation, I believe. I might be misreading that. But it's, uh, yeah, it's a little, so I do think that Theseus is actually a Poseidon son as well. So that could definitely figure in. Okay. 
and gross. Luke being possessed by Kronos. That's disgusting. <sighs> yes, which speaking of Theseus and Quintus, I had actually wrote in the beginning of my notes for like the first couple chapters. I'm trying to figure out who Quintus is because he's very mysterious and he just kind of shows up. And I think, I don't think like Quintus is his real name. I think he's somebody else maybe that we've already heard about or we're going to learn about. And this is just his new name. He's taken on a new identity. So at first I thought he could be Theseus since we know we've heard that Theseus has made out of the maze and Quintus said he'd been in the maze. But of course, a little bit later, Nico ends up summoning Theseus's spirit from the underworld. So it's obviously not, he's not Theseus, so we can cross that off the list. So my next guess is that possibly Quintus is, I already forgot, how did we say to say? Daedalus. Daedalus. Daedalus's son, who we is Icarus, which is like the myth, you know, Icarus flies too high and then he dies. Right now, possibly, I think it could be him. And maybe he didn't die. And I just feel like he has to be connected to to the labyrinth because he says he's been in there before and he escaped. So I feel like he has to be connected in some way to that. But we'll, we'll hopefully we'll find out at the end of the book. I just was trying to have some theories. But that's what we think. But going back to Theseus, when Nico summons him... He's asking if it's possible to do the soul for a soul thing and how Theseus was able to actually navigate the labyrinth. And Theseus tells Nico that actually the love of a mortal girl is what actually helped him escape. The string was only part of the answer. And Theseus almost recognizes the voice of the ghost with Nico, which at this point we don't know who it is, but we don't learn his identity and... At that point, I was thinking it was Daedalus or the king from Percy's earlier dream, which we do find out it's King Minos. Is that how you say it? Yeah. Okay. And their conversation, Theseus and Nico, their conversation ends up getting cut short because Theseus says, he has sensed your summons and he is coming, which I would assume he is referring to Hades because he's summoning souls from the underworld and maybe he's getting notions you know that someone's using up all this power who is that but unfortunately after that this also we're seeing all this again from the iris message that percy's receiving from his fountain in his cabin which the power from all that ends up destroying the fountain and percy has to like cut it because it seems like it's going to explode the whole cabin which I just thought was really sad because he had the beautiful like spring that's gone now yeah it is sad I think that maybe Poseidon will get it fixed for him but I'm enjoying all these theories for sure I think that we'll see what we'll see what pans out and I want to quickly like we've got Nico summoning things from the dead and I don't remember how old Nico is is he like 12 like he's like I think he's 10 or 11, because I think in the last book he was 10, so Percy says he's probably, like, 11 by now. So he's pretty advanced for his age. Like, he's... He's a child. He's a child summoning lots of dead people. Like, a lot of them. Like, I... Nico is talent. I mean, again, big three, big powers. But, like, he's talented. Yeah. And I wanted to double flag what you mentioned about the love of a mortal girl that got Theseus through the maze. 
because as soon as that happened, I was like, oh, that's the answer. That's how you get through the maze. That's how Percy's going to get through because he loves Annabeth and she's mortal. And thank God she didn't become a hunter because then she, you know, wouldn't have, she wouldn't be mortal anymore. And then we have our stupid Percy moment where he does not remember it when Hera mentions it later. The fact that Hera, so this is skipping ahead, but I guess we can just kind of go in there. They go into the maze Mm-hmm. And they run into Hera, and she specifically is like, well, Percy knows the answer of how to get through the maze. And Percy's like, I have no idea what she's talking about. And I was like, you were just told that it's the love of a mortal girl. Oh, okay. I, I'm not even going to lie. I did not make that connection. <laughs> also, I'm just going to say because, so when I was thinking of mortal, I was thinking of human. So, because when you just said his love for Annabeth, I was not considering Annabeth immortal, but technically she is because she's not immortal. So that makes way more sense because I thought you were going to say like Rachel Elizabeth Dare because she's just a human being. Like she's got nothing special, but that makes way more sense. So that is why I did not make that connection. So I have a reason. Yeah, I had to think about it, but I was like, wait, no, half-bloods, demigods, they are mortal. They can die. They can be given immortality by their godparents, like, which is Eutarian, yeah. but they're not promised it. So That makes so much sense, though, because so because I think either Chiron or Quintus, they keep telling Percy that you have to focus on what matters when you're in the maze. You can't get distracted. So that makes sense that you have to focus on what matters, your love for Annabeth. And that will guide you. Wow. And I do like that it's Hera who mentions it because Hera is the goddess of marriage and union and family. Like, that's her role. So I like that she's like, well, Percy knows the answer is love or like like this sort of true love. Not like Aphrodite love, which is more like lust and like attraction. Like, I like that it's Hera who like, I mean, again, Percy doesn't remember it yet, so it doesn't really matter yet. But it's the fact that it's Hera who tells him that it's like, or should be reminding him that it's his love for Annabeth. I liked that a lot. Yes, and right before Hera comes in, she actually appears because she prevents Janus, who is the god of choices and decisions, this two-faced man, which I just paused really quick. There are so many weird characters described in this book. Like, like multiple get, body part characters, Yeah, right? multiple bodies, multiple faces, multiple hands, the hundred-handed people. Gross. Like It's so gross. Like, I just, this is one of those things, like, I would, it would be interesting to see this as a movie because to actually see all these creatures created in real life because some things, like, like the hundred-handed one, I can't even imagine what that would look like. Like, that's where it's like my imagination is kind of failing me because I just can't even imagine how that would be possible. I think of something from like Monsters, Inc. Yeah, I guess, but like with a whole bunch of hands. That but like, like human hands, hands? Gross. gross. Or like Lilo and Stitch, like where they have a gajillion arms. But I mean, it's even just like the Argus back at the camp, how he has like eyes all over his body. Like that just sounds so gross. Like, so I just can't Blech. even imagine it. Yeah, we need to read a book with humans in it soon. But anyway, Hera comes in to stop Janus from forcing Annabeth to make her big decision. And she does tell them after she goes through all that, she tells them that they need to find Hephaestus because he greatly admired Daedalus and he likely has kept up with his whereabouts. So they should go to him. But she does tell Annabeth that she has only postponed her day of choice and that Annabeth will eventually have to make this big decision 
But again, we don't necessarily know what this big decision means. Do you have any ideas or theories on what the decision is? I think it has something to do with the end of the prophecy that we don't know. So something about death, maybe she has to choose who's going to die, especially we're getting all these hints that, you know, they say only three people should go on the quest. So it's likely one of them is going to die, which I mean, even how you were saying like Nico wanting to take one of the innocents, like I obviously, obviously Percy's not going to die. Like he's the main character. We still have another book, but I don't know. It just makes me sad, but I do think her decision's going to have to do with someone's going to have to die. She's going to have to choose who is going to die. Yeah, I would agree. That's what I expected too. It's some sort of sacrifice or someone, especially since we have been told that it should have been three people. And it seems like a very Athena wisdom sort of a philosophical question of deciding who should die and having that power. Cause it's a very philosophical question. Like, do you kill a baby who would have feel less pain? Like if you have to like, or would you kill an, a, a, like an elderly person who will feel the pain, but like can't ha- doesn't have much life left to live. Like it's a very philosophical question that seems particularly challenging for like an Athena child, like the child of wisdom. Yeah. Especially with what Athena was talking about. In the last book with Percy's fatal flaw and the idea of she's like, I know Percy, you can't, you wouldn't save the world. You'd save your friend or you'd save somebody who was close to you. So it will be interesting if that is the decision, what Annabeth's choice will make, because as loyal as she is to Percy. She'll probably make the greater good child. Like, like you're Percy. I'm Annabeth. I would make the greater good. You would save me. <laughs> good to know. But Yeah. I, I'm I'm interested to see how that pans out. And I just want to quickly on those two gods. One, Janice, world building. I mean, they didn't say it here, but the name of the month January comes from Janus for the two-faced god looking forward, looking back, because January is the beginning of the year and of the calendar. Um, that's where the month, and I know that because I'm a January baby. So that's where the name January comes from is because it's looking back on the year before and moving on to that year ahead. But I do want to mention how stupid and anti-feminist Hera is because she's like, I can only interfere very irregularly and I get pulled back by my husband. And she's like talking to them for like three minutes. And she's like, oh, Zeus is summoning me. I got to go. And like, I mean, it's cool that she can do anything at all. But like we've seen Artemis, who is so empowered. And we've seen Athena, who is so empowered And I get it. It has to do with the fact that Hera is like the eternally loyal wife. Mm -hmm. But I was like, oh, this is so stupid. Like she's like she can only intervene every couple thousand years. And even then she can only be there for like three minutes. Ugh, it annoyed me. Well, also, I mean, it just sucks that she's the goddess of marriage and her husband Zeus has cheated multiple times and there's nothing she can do about it. And I feel like. Because she's the goddess of marriage and that's what she believes in, she would never cheat. Like, that's why she doesn't have any no, children. That's why she so have it's any like kids. this she's in a terrible position. Just sad. So sad. So then after that, they end up exiting the labyrinth and they end up on Alcatraz. And I have to say, it took me a second to even realize they'd exited. The it wasn't very clear. Like, it was kind of like, are they like in a memory Alcatraz? Like, well, it was yeah, a little because unclear. they say how, like, it builds itself. So at first, I was like, oh, they're in a copy of it. They're not actually in Alcatraz. I don't even, 
I didn't realize for sure until once they actually leave the building and they see human beings and people. I was like, oh, they're they're actually out of the maze. But anyway, they get on Alcatraz and they free Briares, who is is that how you say it? <laughs> I don't know. I would say Briares, but that would just be me making it sound more fancy. I just, I have to ask you because I don't know how to pronounce it. As if I would know. And I don't like, I don't want people to listen and be like, wow, she really said that word wrong. But I could be saying it wrong and then I'm telling you to say it wrong too. Daedalus, Daedalus, Daedalus. But it's better at least if we're both saying the same thing. Whereas if I say it one way and then, you know, 30 seconds later you say it completely different, I'm going to be embarrassed. Okay. We're going to say it's Briares and Compe. Okay, Compe. Okay. How else would you say it? Campy? Like, I don't know. I was thinking. (laughs) (laughs) Campy sounds like Stampy, and it's like a seafood monster, so maybe let's call it Campy. I think when I read it, also because I don't know, just a side note, we're going tangent. When I, in a book, when I'm reading, if I don't know how to pronounce a word, like, I just don't read it. Like, it's just in my head when you're You're reading it. You're just like proper noun passing along. Yeah, it's like blah, blah, blah. And then I just keep reading. So, like, I never even think of a way to pronounce it because since you're not having to say it out loud. But that's why when we get to these words, I get really nervous because I'm like, I haven't even thought about it because I never actually read it. When I'm reading, I'm like, I have to think about how we're going to pronounce it. And then when we're prepping for the pod, sometimes we discuss and sometimes we don't. So And we clearly we did, did not this time. time. But I literally was reading it and I was like, hmm, how would you say this? Campy? Campy? Let's just say campy because it sounds like scampy, like seafood. Okay, so campy and Briares. I guess. So they free him. He's a hundred-handed one who they are brothers of Cyclopes. So Tyson is really excited to meet him and is like, we have to free him. Like, he really looks up to him, which is sad because Briares ends up being kind of a coward, which is understandable because they've been in prison for a long time, him specifically. But they have to face Campy, who how how she is described is just <clears throat> this is an, yet another character where it's like I cannot even imagine this in like a movie, like physically seeing this because they say like. I think for me, the biggest part is how they say she has around, like, where her waist would be. There's, like, different animal heads, like, constantly changing, like, lion's head, bear's head. Like, that doesn't even make sense to me. Like, I just can't even imagine it. But they have to face her. Well, doesn't she have, like, a fish tail, like a mermaid tail? She has, like, yeah, it's, she's, like, a combination. Like, I imagined her as, like, the Starbucks logo, but, like, evil. See, and again, I think... (laughs) This is when it shows, like, my imagination isn't that great because I just imagine it's some big scary thing and we just don't even look at it. I don't know what it is. I can't comprehend. Like, I need I need visuals. I need a picture. We need illustrations need in the books. Um, we need a graphic novels of these books. But anyway, they end up barely escaping from her with their lives. And another sad part so before Percy had damaged his shield that Tyson gave him in the last book and Tyson fixes it for him and he's got it all ready. And in order for them to escape Campy, he has to throw the shield at her. So now he's lost it. And it was to save Tyson. So like, I guess I understand, but I was, I don't know about you, but I was very disappointed about that. 
I was sad too. I wrote that in my notes. I was like, did we really just lose the shield? Like we just got it back. And I was like, maybe Asia will have read it differently than I did, but I think he just lost the shield. And I was very sad about it. I was very, very sad about it. But before we move on from Alcatraz, I just want to mention that Evil Scary Beasts on Alcatraz, it's actually going to come up in the next book series we read. And I don't want to give too much away, but that could be a little bit of a hint of the series we're reading next. And we'll announce it next week because we'll be finishing up book four, give you a couple weeks to get ready for the next one. But if you like adapted mythology books, because we're going to read one more mythology series after this, and there is Alcatraz and scary monsters on it. So you'll get some more of that in the next series. Okay. Well, don't spoil it all. But <laughs> <laughs> we have a net yet another dream to discuss. Awful. So this time Percy has another dream about Daedalus and how him and his son Icarus escape their prison with his invention of bronze wings. Yeah, and when we got to the Icarus story, I just was thinking about one of my favorite songs from the Hamilton musical, when Philippa Sue, or I guess Eliza Hamilton, is singing about her husband, Alexander, and how she married an Icarus, and he flew too close to the sun, and he got burned. Anyway, listen to the soundtrack. Burn was definitely on like one of my top five lists for Spotify Wrapped this year. Okay, good, good to know. Going back to the story. <laughs> They finally find Nico. They get to Triple G Ranch, and there's this three-chested man. So, literally, he has two legs, two arms, one head, but three separate torsos. Again, I cannot imagine this. It makes no sense to me. Like, are there spaces in between his torsos? I think because, like, they describe how he has on three shirts. Otherwise, it would just be one big one. He has on three different shirts, I think. And Percy even says, he's like, I don't know how I understand how he'd get the middle shirt on because he doesn't have arms or anything. So yet another person and also another name. His name is Gurion and his muscle man. How did you say it before? Garyon and Euterion. See, I already said it wrong. I don't know, but I'm I maybe I'm adding extra letters. I'm also kind of saying them like Yuri, Game of Thrones. Wait, did you say Yuri Terion? I said Yurterion. But maybe it should be Eterion. Air Erition? I don't know. Yurition. Yurition? Who knows? Yurition. He's a son of Ares, the muscle man. That's what I'm gonna I'm gonna call him. The muscle man. He's also there. And Gurion is selling animals <laughs> to Kronos' army. And he's got all these, he's got fire-breathing horses and flesh-eating horses. And he ends up revealing that he's planning to sell Nico to Kronos' army because obviously he's a son of the big three. He's very valuable. But Percy makes a deal that if he cleans up all the horse poop, he can take Nico with them. And this is when we find out that the ghost Nico's been talking to is King Minos, which is the evil king that imprisoned Daedalus. Yeah, since we got to Minos, I just want to organize all the names and make sure that we're correct. Like, not pronunciation-wise, but, like, <laughs> plot-wise. Because we are getting these dreams in out of order. But, correct me if I'm wrong, Minos is the evil king who imprisons Daedalus and Daedalus' son, Icarus. Daedalus is the one who designs the maze. And Theseus is the Poseidon spirit son who goes in and beats the maze. 
and beats the Minotaur, 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 geez, Minotaur in the maze. Is that right? Am I forgetting anything? Yes, you are. <laughs> okay, I forgot something. What did I forget, Asia? <laughs> I meant to say no. I don't know why I said yes. <laughs> no, you're not forgetting anything of what we discussed, but we also learn Daedalus's nephew is named Perdix, and that's the nephew he murders because Perdix is like talking about Icarus and how if I made the bronze wings, I wouldn't they wouldn't have failed and like your son wouldn't have died, which you know is kind of a terrible thing to say. But Yeah, but also Daedalus just pushes him off. He the doesn't tower. push him. Very Game of Thrones. He book tricks one. him. Perdix is like standing near the edge and he throws the thing for him to catch it, and Perdix is kind of Stupid. I mean, he's dumb for sure, but like, wow, I would. That's still evil. And he leans over and he falls. So technically, didn't push him, but like, well, they even show, which I thought that was really cool. How in that scene when they describe it in Percy's dream, they even show that Daedalus, the god Janus, shows up and is like, choices, choices. Which one are you gonna make? And obviously, he chooses to kill Perdix. So I thought that was interesting. And then Athena shows up and she's like, you're going to pay for this, my son. So Daedalus was a half-blood. Yeah. Yeah, also could be credence to like the idea that Annabeth's decision is going to be about death because Janus's decision was for an Athena child about death. And then we would go get the parallel of Annabeth being an Athena child having to decide between death with Janus. Boom, mind blown. Okay, also, let's circle back to the twel- the horsies, uh, the cleaning the stables. Because we got there, and I was like, well, that sounds like a Herculean labor. Because I know, like, the when I had, like, a cassette set when I was a kid, it was, like, the story of Hercules, and he, like, had to do the 12 labors. And the one that I always remembered was the one time when Hercules is smart, and he uses the water to redirect and clean the Aegean stables, um, the Augean stables. And I was like, hmm. I wonder if, like, let me just double-check the labors, because he also kills the lion in the previous book. And I was like, that's definitely one of them. I think it's, like, number one is slay the Nemean lion. So I went and double-checked what the 12 labors are, and I think that Percy has interacted with, if not completed, most of the labors, or he will over the course of the books. So i just going through them. Slay the Nemean lion. Done. Slay the nine-headed hydra. Done. Capture the Cernerian hind. We haven't gotten that yet. Capture the Aramanthian boar. They haven't done that, but they did meet the boar. So I feel like that's close enough. He cleans the stables in a single day. Yes. He and Annabeth slayed the Stymphalian birds. Yes. He hasn't captured the Cretian bull, but he defeated a bull when he first got to camp. Also, they are in the maze where the Cretian bullet is. So there's a chance that it could actually happen again. They have to steal the mares of Diomedes. I don't know if that counts. So he did kind of just take control of the ranch. And I don't know if we got confirmation that those are mares, but like he kind of just gave the mares to someone else. That's kind of the same thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, He has to obtain the girdle of Hippolyta, which he has not done yet, and obtain the cattle of the three-bodied giant Garyon. Like we literally got that verbatim. And... He has to steal three apples of the Hesperides. He hasn't done that, but they did meet the Hesperides and kind of evaded them last book and capture and bring back a Cerberus. And they beat a Cerberus in the first book when they went to the underworld. 
So there's actually a lot of parallels. I don't know if we're going to get them exactly, but also, 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 Percy has Hercules' sword, the one that Zoe Nightshade made for him. Riptide was made for Hercules. So I'm wondering if, like, we've got a lot of parallels and... That's in. I'm sure it's intentional. No duh. But I'm like, I we have to check off all twelve labors, don't we? What do you think? Yeah, that that is very cool. I didn't know any of that. My extension of knowing what Hercules is the Disney movie. So that was very interesting. Going the distance. I'm not going to sing for you guys. Don't worry. But <laughs> but yes. So that was yes. We should keep. You should. Keep I'll track it. Track of I'll that track it. for until through the end of the series. But back to the Percy, he's able to clean the stables because he goes and talks to the water spirit. And she's like, you are not using my river. It's going to be poisoned for years, decades. Climate change. And per- <laughs> Yeah. So Percy's like, I won't do it. So he's like, I have to figure something out. And she explains how this part of town or whatever used to be underwater. And so Percy's like, I don't know how that would help me. But... He ends up, he like kind of throws a tantrum almost and he picks up the dirt and throws it into the stable and it sprouts out water because there's seashells in the dirt. And so he starts throwing it all over and he's literally able to create salt water out of dirt or seashells and dirt. So I think out of all of his superpowers so far, that's pretty cool. Yeah, I actually liked this Percy power because I felt like it was very appropriate for a sea god to sort of go back to the essence of the seashells. I didn't mind it as much, especially now that we got the fact that Demeter's kids can grow plants. I'm like, well, we know I'd be an Athena kid, but my second choice would probably be an Athena kid growing orchids just left and right. Wait, you mean you mean Demeter? Yes, I would be an <laughs> Athena kid, but my second choice would be Demeter. Mm-hmm. But I... I laughed out loud when he when I was reading it and he he realizes that he can summon the salt water and he throws more shells, but he's like, the guys aren't strong enough. And he just says out loud, he's like, more. And there's more water. And I was giggling pretty, pretty ver- verbally because I thought that was really funny that he was like, I'm just going to talk to the water. Yeah, well, Percy powers aside, we also get a moment showing how intelligent Percy actually is. And he confronts Nico and says that he thinks Bianca is the one who's been sending him the Iris messages. And that's why he tells Nico, if you summon her now, she'll come because she wants to talk to me, which, you know, is kind of sad. But Bianca does end up coming and she confirms that she is the one who sent Percy the Iris messages. And she tells Nico that he she hasn't answered his summonings because she wants him to move on. And she tells him that he should forgive Percy because holding grudges is the fatal flaw of Hades' children. And she says it will be his downfall if he doesn't let it go. And she tells him that he's not even really mad at Percy. He's ultimately mad at Bianca for abandoning him first to become a hunter. And then she dies and truly abandons him. So... I thought that whole like part was just sad, but true. And hopefully, I doubt it, but hopefully Nico will, you know, grow up a little bit and realize that everything he's doing is only going to hurt him in the end. Yeah, I thought that whole vignette was really emotional. The fact that Nico is so blinded and even Percy's like, I figured it out for you. And it's just, 
it's it's just awful. Like this kid is so abandoned and he's young and like he's clearly very smart and capable, but it was it was not an easy part to read when Bianca's like, This will be your downfall. And Nico still doesn't really want to accept it, which I think might lead towards Nico dying or sacrificing himself. He might have to like be the one who dies to save the quest of four. Like he's not there yet, obviously, because he's not on their side. But it was just tough to read because Nico was so alone and so unhappy. Yeah, it was sad for sure. Sad. But they decide that or after. He after, says he's not going to come with them. Yeah, after Percy defeats Gurion or whatever his name is. And the G-boy. And the airy son, <laughs> Yuri Tion, whatever his name is. He's like, Nico can stay here. Like, it's fine. Nico decides to not go with them. He gives Annabeth a mechanical spider, which she freaks out for a second, that he says will lead them to Hephaestus's forges. So they follow it. They go back into the maze. And they end up in this room with this giant sphinx where Annabeth thinks she'll have to answer one riddle. But apparently they've changed the test to being 20 questions on super random facts. So Annabeth actually refuses to take the test like three questions in because she's like, this doesn't make any sense. Like the riddle should be challenging my intelligence. This is embarrassing. And they end up having to fight the Sphinx and they barely escape. Yeah. Also, like part of me was hoping that we would get all 20 questions to see which ones we could get because I did know all the answers for the few that we got. And I was like, hmm, of course, I wonder did. if we could get all of them. You would have too. They were like, they weren't hard questions. Wasn't it like the capital of something random? Like I would not capital have known of Bulgaria, that. Sophia. How would I know that? It's like if you, you go on like Jeopardy that. or something. I'm not the kind of person for that. I'm not going to go on Jeopardy. <laughs> Square root of sixteen is four, but that's I also that. pretty common knowledge. That's um, easy. That's math. It is math, but yeah, that was a really non-subtle comment on our education system, like the fact that. There, she's like, the whole point of the Sphinx is to test my intelligence. And the Sphinx is like, how am I supposed to do that? I can't tell whether you're smart or not. Let me just give you these uh, basic fact-finding questions. Like, I was like, oh, that's definitely a comment on standardized testing. 150%. Yeah, she even has the machine and everything. And they break yeah. the machine. And she's like, I'm going to have to grade them by hand. And though I did think it was a little stupid of Annabeth to be like, there's one riddle and I know what the answer is. Like, I, I mean... Maybe that's how what her research had told her the Sphinx in the maze should do. Mm-hmm. But I always think of a Sphinx as giving you a riddle. And again, another Harry Potter moment when they're in the maze in Harry Potter book four, there's a Sphinx. And the answer to that riddle is spider. What? Mechanical spider Hephaestus? What? It's all one. And back to Alcatraz. In the next series, we're going to read the evil guardian of the prison of Alcatraz that's guarding all the evil monsters is a sphinx, if I remember correctly. Whoa, I cannot wait to get into that book series. But what's all tying together? It's all my master plan. And then Annabeth refusing to take the test because it wasn't challenging enough felt very Hermione. I very much appreciated it. Go team Annabeth, go team Athena. And that's it so i feel like that's probably a good place to end anything else you want to add asia 
I don't think so. Just I'm looking forward to getting more answers on the identity of characters and just seeing how this book's going to end. Yeah. I really like this one, too, because I like that we're getting the the dreams of Daedalus. Like, we're getting kind of another timeline, plot line, which is just, like, a more interesting read as an adult reader. Yeah, you know, I, I think that as a child, I probably would have been annoyed by that to be, like, distracted. I just Because I just want to follow Percy on, like, I don't even care about anyone else. I don't want to follow Nico or Luke. I just want to, like, go with my hero Percy, you know? But I feel like as an adult, I'm like, I like that we have intersecting timelines and intersecting stories that I want to see how they're going to get tied together. Yeah, especially I also just enjoy when they put more of when the myths are put more directly into the book so it's easier to relate. So yeah, I also enjoy that. So I think then we'll be back next week with the second half of chapters from Percy Jackson in the Battle of the Labyrinth. And we'll be reading chapters 11 through 20 for next week. So if you're reading along, go ahead and finish the book. Yeah, we can't wait to see how it all ties together. If you have any predictions or theories or questions, remember that you can always stay in touch with us regarding really anything on the Nerd Party website. You can just head over to nerdparty.com slash contact and select Throwback Paperback. You can send us an email there. You can get in touch with the general Nerd Party network on Twitter at Join Nerd Party or on Instagram at The Nerd Party. You can also reach me on Twitter and Instagram at C.E. Sheeland. And I'm at Asia Bonilla on Twitter and at Asia.Bonilla on Instagram. Remember that we're a new podcast, so make sure that if you enjoyed this, that you rate and review the podcast and share it with your friends. And of course, check out the other podcasts on the Nerd Party Network. And make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss us next week. Yes, hit that subscribe. Have a good one, and we'll see you next week. Join the revolution. Join the nerd party.